Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. I don't know what it is for you, but my guess is that you have dreams in your life that you want to see realized. Uh, Those dreams shift over time, but I think no matter what season of life we are in, they are always there. Uh, when you're a kid, maybe you have dreams about what, what you're going to do once you grow up. If you're a teenager, maybe you have dreams about going off to college. If you're a young adult, maybe you have dreams about advancing in the job that you have or finding a different job entirely. If you get married, you have dreams of, of building a home and a life together with this person you've been married to. If you have kids, you, that, that morphs into dreams for, for their life. If you're a little older and your kids are out of the house, you have dreams maybe about grandkids or about retirement and traveling, spending time with friends and family. I don't know what the dreams are for you, if they're big or small, but they all seem to come from a place of wanting to be certain that the life we have lived here mattered. If these, if these dreams I have are realized, then I'll know that my life was significant. Maybe we want to leave a legacy for our kids, we just want to improve the resale value of our home, we want to create something that will still be here after we are gone, whatever it is, we want to know, I think, that we have made a difference on this earth. And those dreams may or may not always be realized, but I think their presence within us says something about what it means to be human. And if we, we take that thinking and look at the story of Scripture, we find that Those dreams, those desires are present within us because God created us to partner with him. God did not set things up in creation, get it all uh, in motion, and then walk away, but he created all things so that humanity could be a part of extending God's rule and reign over the earth. No matter who you are, no matter what gifts or interests you have, God created you, I am confident, specifically and individually to play a part in his rule and reign over creation. And that's ultimately where our dreams come from, although uh, those dreams have been corrupted by sin and the brokenness of this world. Our world is filled, whether it's in ourselves or just our world at large, we are filled with these longings and desires of how things should be. And if we're being honest, when we look at the world around us and the things that our world aspires to, not all the things that our world aspires to are bad But when we aspire to them apart from the will of God, we find something that maybe gives us a hint, gives us a glimpse of what God desires for us in our world, but it can't get us all the way there. Ultimately, we're left with, at best, a shadow. A shadow can tell you a fair amount, but it cannot take the place of the real thing. So over the course of this sermon series that we're beginning today, we're going to be unpacking things that our world might dream of, aspire to, say are good things, but look at how they are experienced fully only in Jesus. And this series is inspired, just to give credit where credit's due, it's inspired by a book by uh, the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright called Broken Signposts. This book was actually, if I remember right, a gift to me from Paul McAllister, And we're going to follow the lead of this book throughout this series and look at passages from the Gospel of John so that from there we can get a sense of how our faith makes sense of the world around us. I'm not guaranteeing to solve all the world's problems over the next few weeks, but we can see 
how our world gives us shadows of God's desires. And Jesus comes to make the picture clear. And I think we get a really clear shadow, if that's not a contradiction of terms, uh, by looking at the stories that we enjoy. Whatever genre of, of movie or television or book that you prefer, my guess is the stories that you most enjoy or at least most consume are the ones that have happy endings. The stories where evil is defeated, where the good guys win, where the underdog is victorious, where the guy and the girl end up together. We want stories where things are right at the end. I think at least in part, because deep down we think if, if that story has a happy ending, if that story ends with everything right, then maybe, maybe my story will end with everything right as well. We want to live in a world where there is ultimately... Justice. Now that word justice gets thrown around a lot, but no matter our opinions on how it can specifically get used, it doesn't change the fact that we live in a world that is often unjust, and that fact grieves us. Whatever your perspective on life or the world, my guess is that you have witnessed things in your life or in your world that you see them happen, and something deep down inside you says, oh, that's not right. Something should be done about that. There should be justice. I don't think anyone wants to live in a world where evil runs rampant and no one ever faces consequences for wrongdoing. We want justice. But true justice is difficult. We might say we want justice in theory, but when it comes to application, what we often tend to mean is we want justice for other people, we want leniency for us. If someone's done wrong to me, then the book needs to be thrown at them. They need justice and nothing else. If I've done wrong to someone else, well, I mean, there's, there's more to that story. You, you haven't heard my side. You need to ease up a little bit. I, I don't need the full extent of the law applied to me. And when we go about justice from the standpoint of wanting it to benefit us, it often seems like justice for me leads to injustice for you. And we hurt others in the same way that we've been hurt. We try to institute reforms that are difficult to implement. They, they maybe help some people. They hurt others. No matter how much work we do, there is always injustice out there somewhere. So what does the message of Jesus have to say to a world where so much seems to be wrong, filled with people who know it's wrong and wish that it was right? Well, I think the best place to start might be with what the Bible has to say about creation because it is far different from other accounts written around the same time. I mean, if you read uh, accounts of creation written by other cultures around the same time as the Bible, you'll find stories of the gods are in heaven, and they're kind of sick of having to do all the work on their own, and so they think, how about we create humanity, and humanity will do the work for us and bring us sacrifices and tell us how great we are, and we can just live in luxury. You'll find stories of creation, of, of the deities ruling over all things in chaos, at war with one another, fighting for supremacy, and the end result, the aftermath of all of that all of that chaos is this world that we now inhabit. And if your understanding of yourself is that you just exist to do the bidding and stay on the good side of some God that exists out there, or if your understanding of the world around you is that it's the aftermath of a heavenly battle, that's going to affect how you view yourself and how you view the world around you. And instead... Genesis 1 and 2 give us a picture of things beginning right and perfect and just. 
And that perfection is corrupted by sin, but the imperfect world we now see was not the original design, which at least tells us on the one hand why we want justice. We want justice because God created this world to be just, and our sin, our brokenness has corrupted that. And yet that desire remains. And from there, the rest of the story of Scripture tells us that justice will one day come again. Justice is not some vague idea out there that we can aspire to and think it would be nice, but we're never really going to be able to reach it fully, and so it's just a matter of doing the best we can for as long as we can and hoping for the best. Justice is something we aspire to because God is just, and he created us to live in a just world, and he is bringing that justice about, and we see how that is made possible in the story of Jesus. So we're going to look at John chapter 19 today. If you have a Bible and want to open it up there, the words will be on the screen here in just a little bit. And we're going to be looking at one scene leading up to the death of Jesus. And I fully understand this is a little bit of an odd passage to pull out the Sunday after Easter, but I want to focus on it because it shows us how Jesus suffered unjustly. And because the hope of Easter is still fresh in our minds, hopefully it can give us a glimpse of how God intends to bring justice. And so I want to read for us John 19 verses 1 to 11. It begins by saying, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, hail king of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, look, I'm bringing him out to you, I'm bringing Jesus out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. He went back inside the palace. Where do you come from, he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. This is right in the middle of Jesus' trial before Pontius Pilate. And we'll be coming back to the earlier part of this trial at the end of John 18 here in just a couple weeks. But to set the scene, in the last 24 hours, Jesus has had the Last Supper with his disciples. He's, he spent time in John teaching them about what life is going to be like when he is no longer with them. They've, they've traveled to the Garden of Gethsemane where he has prayed. Uh, Judas and the Roman authorities and the chief priests, they've all shown up in the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest him. Jesus is betrayed into the hands of the authorities. Uh, he's put through a sham trial by the religious leaders. And even though they are convinced he is guilty and needs to be put to death, they can't carry that out without the cooperation of the Roman governor, Pilate. And Pilate's caught in the middle, trying to keep everyone happy, but at a loss as to what he should actually do. It seems pretty clear to him as, as this goes along that, that whatever Jesus has done, really all he's guilty of is upending the status quo of the religious leaders, which is hardly a crime deserving of death. 
But in, in an attempt to keep the peace, he has Jesus flogged. And that might not resonate with us, but anyone living in the Roman Empire would have cringed when they read that. Flogging was brutal. We don't need to get into all the details, but it at times could cause death. So Pilate's logic seems to be that maybe he can have it both ways. These religious leaders seem pretty worked up. I don't think Jesus deserves to be put to death, so I'll just have him flogged and then maybe everyone will calm down. But Jesus is not only put through physical punishment, but also social humiliation. The soldiers put together a crown of thorns intended to look like a parody of the wreaths worn by princes within the Roman Empire, which is painful, sure, but it also makes a mockery of his claim to be a king. They put a purple robe, purple's the color of royalty, on him, and they pay him mock homage as they physically assault him. And then, in this state, he is brought back out before the crowd. And in a culture where everything is based on honor and shame and acquiring as much honor as you can and avoiding shame at all costs, this right here is punishment on its own. Anyone that has gone through the sort of mocking and punishment that Jesus has gone through right here and is allowed to live will spend the rest of their life with shame hanging over their head everywhere they go. And Pilate seems to think that surely at this point we can all agree Jesus has learned his lesson and we can move on. But the crowd will have none of it. They want Jesus crucified and will settle for nothing less. Pilate at this point seems to get frustrated. He says to the religious leaders, well, how about you just go crucify him yourself? Which everyone, Pilate, the religious leaders, Jesus, everyone here knows that that's not what he actually means. Uh, because the Roman Empire does not allow people they have conquered to carry out capital punishments on their own. Everyone here knows that if Jesus is going to be put to death, Pilate has to be the one signing off on it, and he doesn't seem interested in doing that at this point. So the religious leaders pull out another charge. Well, well he claimed to be the Son of God, and therefore by our law he has to die. Now on one level that's true. There are laws in the Old Testament against blasphemy, against claiming to be God if you are not. And if you claim to be God and you are not, you should be put to death. But even if we can entertain the hypothetical that Jesus is claiming to be God when he is not, he, he's called himself the Son of God, which when you read through the Old Testament, the King of Israel is called the Son of God all over the place, and the nation of Israel as a whole is referred to as God's Son. So, so even if Jesus is guilty of saying this, and even if Jesus is not actually who he claims to be, he's not saying anything no one has ever heard before. But if you notice, when Pilate hears this, he gets afraid. And the religious leaders must know that, that hearing that term, son of God, is going to trip something in Pilate's brain. Uh, maybe Pilate's you know, just a good Roman and believes in the pantheon of gods, and so when he hears the phrase, son of God, he thinks, oh, maybe this actually is someone who is divine in some sense in the flesh, and if I sentence someone like that to death, then I'm going to be in a world of trouble with somebody, I just don't know who. Or it could be that that title, son of God, is a title usually reserved for the emperor of Rome. The emperor would claim to be the son of the divine, the son of God. And the Roman Empire doesn't take too kindly to people taking titles for themselves from Caesar. And Caesar's Pilate's boss, and so if this is legitimate, he should deal with it quickly. So he takes Jesus back behind closed doors. He tries to interrogate him again, and Jesus does not cooperate. Even in this moment where, if you think about it, if Jesus just says the right thing right here, Pilate's probably going to let him go. And Jesus says nothing. 
Pilate gets irritated at this. And obviously we can understand where the story is headed. If you're here this morning, you probably understand why this is happening. But try to put yourself in Pilate's shoes. He's had a rough day at work, to say the least. And now he's on the verge of a riot. He's trying to do the right thing. He's trying to free someone that he thinks is innocent. And the person he's trying to free refuses to help. I mean, the only reason why someone in Jesus' position wouldn't speak when being addressed by Pilate is if they thought the situation was beneath them, and that would seem like an odd conclusion. Yet Jesus simply comments that Pilate is not as in control as he thinks he is. Pilate would have no authority if it had not been given to him by God. God is the one that everyone in this situation will ultimately answer to. Pilate's not accountable to the crowd. Pilate is not accountable to the emperor of Rome. The religious leaders are not accountable to their own desires. Every one of them will be held accountable for their actions by God himself. And Jesus, the eye in the middle of this storm, seems to be the only person with that perspective to the frustration of everyone else. He refuses to play their games even if we know where this story is headed we should pause and wonder, why would someone do that? What would cause someone to be in the middle of all this going on and be willing to claim that God is still in control? Jesus seems to think there's more to this story, even if no one around him can see it. And Jesus' answer doesn't help Pilate, and so we get one more scene to the story, picking up in verse 12. It says, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here's your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. The religious leaders have one more card to play, and they tell Pilate that anyone who would let Jesus go cannot consider himself a friend of Caesar. Now, that might sound like an odd thing to say, but if you look at it, it is really kind of the whole point of Pilate's job. I don't know if Pilate was handed a job description on his first day after he'd been appointed to be governor of the region of Judea, but if he had been, probably the first thing on that job description would have been keep the peace in this region on behalf of Caesar. That's the whole reason he's here. And he's on the verge of not being able to do that very well if, if a riot breaks out because of Jesus. And the Roman emperor at this time, Caesar, is Tiberius. And if you look at history, Caesar Tiberius, Emperor Tiberius, tends to be a little paranoid, if I can use that term, of any and all threats to come and take his throne. So if I can try to, simp I tell you that to say, if I can try to simplify what the religious leaders are saying to Pilate when they say, if you let him go, you're no friend of Caesar, what they're essentially saying is, if you don't do what we say, we're tattling on you to your paranoid boss, and that's not going to go well for you. And so, the stakes get even higher for Pilate. He asks the religious leaders, do you really want me to crucify your king? Which seems to be one more attempt to get a dig in on them to show them how absurd he finds this situation. And in response, the religious leaders say, 
we have no king but Caesar. Wow. Uh, The Jewish religious authorities, the, the leaders of God's covenant people stand here before Pilate and say without a hint of irony in their voice that the only authority they pledge allegiance to is the emperor of Rome. And at this proclamation, Pilate can see that the only way he's going to get peace is if he puts Jesus to death, and so he hands down his sentence. Now I assume that at least a great deal of you know where this story is headed. But there are times where we get so focused on the end that we don't linger on these details. And when you look just at the trials that Jesus goes through, you find injustice everywhere. If we go all the way back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, this all starts because Jesus is upending the status quo of these religious leaders and they're not a fan of that. And so they're trying to figure out how they can get rid of Jesus. They have schemed to have Jesus arrested. They violated their own laws in the process. They're convinced Jesus should die and they're not going to let anything, not even the truth, get in the way of that process. They're so caught up in protecting themselves, they want an innocent person put to death. They go so far as to proclaim that the only king they will pay homage to is the emperor of Rome who is currently taxing and oppressing them into oblivion. This is not how this situation is supposed to go. But given that breakdown, you would hope that Pilate, I mean, he's the one actually in charge. He's got the might of the Roman army behind him. Surely he's going to step in and stop all this injustice. But but Pilate seems at best interested in keeping the peace. He seems to know the right thing to do, but by the end of the story, he's okay with letting an innocent person die if it means there won't be a riot. That's not how this is supposed to go. I don't know if there's one single person we can blame for this entire situation, but I think we could at least say that the system failed. And we can also acknowledge that this is far from the first or last injustice that has been committed in the history of humanity. Obviously, this stands apart because all of us are in some way responsible for the injustice of Jesus' death, but we should also acknowledge that we live in a world with injustice, where people are often hurt instead of helped. So what do we do when we confront injustice, no matter how big of a scale we find it on? What do we do when something happens in our life or in our world and we look at it and say, that's not right. Someone should do something about that. Do we feel bad? Post about it on social media? Maybe commission a study so hopefully the same mistakes don't get repeated? On a more personal level, do we just hold a grudge, vowing one day, I don't know how, I don't know when, I don't know where, but I am going to get even? Do we try to vote, protest, or donate our way out of it? Do we accuse as we've been accused? Do we scheme against others like how they've schemed against us? Do we just shout louder than everyone else until eventually everyone gives in and we get our way? Some of those options might be sound strategies. Some of them might work for a time, but if we're being honest, how far can any of that truly take us? Any solution like that will not deal with the problem completely, so where do we go for justice? If we want an answer, we have to open John 19 and look at the one who should be defending himself but doesn't. 
the answer to the injustice we find in our world is found in the silence of Jesus. Even though this injustice will lead to his death, he is silent because he is not overcome, but is victorious at his resurrection. Seeing Jesus overcome injustice shows us that all the injustices in our world will one day be made right. Jesus has suffered more injustice than any one of us will ever experience. If you have been accused of something that you did not do, so is Jesus. If you've been hurt because those in authority cared more about themselves than about you, so is Jesus. If you've had your words twisted into something you did not mean by those who were out to get you, so was Jesus. Jesus was abused, tortured, and put to death even though he was innocent. He knows our pain. He knows our injustice. And yet his suffering does not have the last word. It is in the moment of taking on the full force of human injustice on the cross that he defeats it forever. He suffers the punishment that should have been ours so that we might be delivered. He steps into the heart of injustice, experiences it himself fully so that he might defeat all injustice for all time from the inside out, which means that our longing for justice will one day be rewarded. You've maybe heard the quote from Martin Luther King Jr. that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice, and that is absolutely true because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's not true because there's some force of justice out in the world that's kind of slowly, gently nudging us in that direction. It is true because Jesus has taken the greatest injustice imaginable on himself so that we might have justice within his kingdom. No matter what we endure, we will not endure anything worse than what Christ has endured for us. If Christ has gone to the cross and overcome death at his resurrection, then surely we will one day experience justice as well. Surely our story will also have a happy ending. Christ has risen from the dead, which means there will be a day when the words of Amos 5.24 will be fulfilled, and justice will flow like a river, and righteousness will flow like a stream that never dries up. That is where we place our hope. The injustice suffered by Jesus tells us that there will one day be true, lasting, healing, restorative, life-giving justice for us and for our world. This is what we look forward to, that we currently glimpse in shadows. We look forward to when Christ will return and make all things new, bringing his justice and righteousness with him. And in the meantime, we live as people who are just, following the example of Christ as we participate in this kingdom that is making all things new, we work to bring his justice into the world now as a preview of what he will one day bring in full. We love and serve others in a world that says you should only look out for yourself because Christ has loved and served us. We are generous in a world that celebrates greed because Christ has given us his all. We allow the way of Jesus to direct our lives in a world that celebrates independence because the way of Jesus brings life. We live with hope in a world of despair because we know our King has conquered. We seek right in a world filled with so much wrong because we know that Jesus will one day make all things right. That is the life Jesus calls us to. And I hope you experience it. If you need help figuring out what that means for you, come find myself or Isaac out at the Welcome Center 
after worship is over because we would love to just talk and pray with you. We're not out there to sell you something, to twist your arm into something you don't want to do. We are simply there to walk alongside you as you journey more deeply into the life with God you were created to live. Come experience life with the one who experienced injustice for us so that we might have justice at the end. Let's pray. God, we thank you that Christ has taken injustice on himself so that we might have your justice and righteousness. That although we were unjust people, that although we had rebelled against you, you did not treat us as our sins deserve. You did not give us true justice in punishing us for wrongs we had done, but you sent Christ so that we might have his justice instead. Thank you. One who has come, who is perfect in every way, just in all he does. Help us step into a life of justice within your kingdom. Living as you have lived in every part of our lives to glorify and honor you now and always. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.